You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. I was wondering if it was going to come in or not. Ah, welcome, friends. Hello, neighbor. <laughs> I don't get to put on my sweater. I already have none today. So. Guys, glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Christians are stupid. <laughs> I wasn't asking for an amen. I'm not done with the story. Christians are stupid. That was the thought of Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She was a tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse back in the 90s, which, don't freak out, was 30 years ago. (laughs) She was convinced Christians were racist, misogynistic, oppressive, and all the rest. She wrote this about her experience with Christianity. She said, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it, not to deepen it. And Dr. Butterfield, in many ways, had data to back up her assessment. Study after study over the last three decades have shown that Christians who identify as evangelical are more likely to abuse and divorce their spouses than non-evangelicals are the most likely religious group to object to having neighbors of color and exhibit racist assumptions about them, and are statistically just as materialistic in their giving patterns as non-Christians. In fact, wealthier evangelical Christians, the more wealthy they get, the lower their giving percentage dives. If today, right now, every Christian in America gave 10% to their churches, the American church could immediately provide basic health care and education to every human on earth and still have 60 to $70 billion left over. There's a guy named Ron Sider uh, who wrote about this in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. He said, whether the issue is marriage and sexuality or morality and care for the poor, the data suggests that in many crucial areas, evangelicals are not living any differently than their unbelieving neighbors. And so Rosaria, in her own life, was fed up with these people who worshipped Jesus. This Jesus who, in her words, looked about as powerful as a shampoo commercial model. She cared about morality and justice, and compassion. She studied Freud, and Hegel, and Marx, and Darwin. She strove to stand with the disempowered. And she and her lesbian partner were great citizens. They were actively involved in advocating for children's health and literacy, AIDS, support and care, golden retriever rescue, and so much more. And so eventually, in 1997, she published a scathing article and critique of American Christian culture. And in response to the article, she set up two Xerox machines. Remember, I said it was the 90s. Two Xerox machines, one for hate mail and one for support. And both of them were fuel to her fire. She ended up starting a book critiquing American Christian culture. But there was one letter she received that gave her pause. It was from a pastor of a small Presbyterian church in Syracuse, the same city in which he taught. The pastor's name was Ken Smith. And he didn't spout anger or condemnation. Instead, he showed something that Rosaria had never seen from a Christian. Curiosity. He showed that he had listened to her critiques and even validated some of her experience. And then she asked her questions. He asked her questions. 
questions that she appreciated as an intellectual. Questions like, how did you arrive at your interpretations? What are the assumptions that you carry about the world and humanity? How do you know you're right? And then, beyond those questions, he did something even more shocking. He invited her over for dinner in his home, behind enemy lines. And initially, she wanted to crumple that invitation up and throw it out, but it stayed on her desk, and it stayed with her, and she said, you know what? I'm going to go, because this will be a great opportunity to get some more research for my book, to confirm why Christians are as messed up as they are. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, became Rosaria's friends. They entered her world. Dinners became a regular and enjoyable rhythm. They did book exchanges. They spent time with her friends and talked openly about sexuality and politics. And Ken was just different. When he prayed, he prayed with a sort of grateful intimacy before God. He repented of his sin in front of her and in front of others. And he never once invited her to Sunday church. He just became her safe friend. And so after a while, she picked up her Bible, not encouraged by anything other than morbid curiosity at this point. And as any good English scholar or reader would, she devoured that sucker. She read it multiple times in the next year, and she couldn't help but be intrigued by the way it talked about God, about humanity, about the world. She saw some overlap between Jesus' passion for justice and her passion for justice. And soon her friends started to get confused. One was actually a former female minister who had left the faith after 15 years, feeling like God was absent. She also was lesbian. She said, the Bible's changing you, Rosaria. This is dangerous. And she fought with everything she had. She didn't want to change her life. She didn't ask for any of this. But one day, for reasons she's still not fully aware of, she showed up at Syracuse Presbyterian on a Sunday morning. And that Sunday, actually not a whole lot changed but she did meet some really gracious and loving Christians. She did hear an emotionally and intellectually stimulating service that made her think, that made her feel, that made her question. And so she kept showing up a little bit more and a little bit more. Studies and meals, gatherings, service opportunities, potlucks, church's favorite things to do. And at first, her approach was skeptical. She wanted God to prove to her on her terms, that what he said in the Bible was true about sex and identity and all the rest. She wanted full understanding before she bought in. But God promised the opposite. Full understanding after you buy in. It was relational sort of understanding, relational knowledge. See, the truth is that that's always how truth works. You don't come to truth in theory, you come in practice. A spouse can only understand lifelong love for their spouse after they're married. A parent can only really understand sacrificial love for their child after they have a kid. And so in the middle of all her wrestling, she found herself asking deep and profound questions like, do I really want to find the truth? Or am I just angry at God and want to argue? Has the love I've been fighting to feel my whole life been born out of mistaken identity? And who am I, after all? And then one day, more than two years later, She came to Jesus. She chose to give him everything. She chose to hand herself over to him. And Ken was there. Floyd was there. And it wasn't smooth. By her own words, she was a broken mess. 
because she didn't want to lose her old life. But she kept on hearing this deep, unutterable song of God speaking in the midst of her soul. She kept on wrestling and reckoning with that song over more and more meals, over more and more tables with more and more Christians. And she slowly drank in the goodness of a life with God. A deep life of connection to his loving spirit. A life of new identity. A life of holistic care for others. A life of acknowledging what's wrong and turning around. Not out of shame, but out of an awareness of dignity. That God has made us for more and that he's calling us to our true selves. By her own words, she is the most unlikely convert she ever met. She's now married to a Presbyterian pastor. She's a writer, speaker, mother, and foster parent, and she and her family run a sort of hospitality commune out of their home. And in reflecting on her own story over the years, she noticed one recurring space where God kept meeting her and showing up. Tables. Tables. You know, the things with four legs? Tables. With Ken and Floyd, with other Christians, the table, the space of welcome through eating and drinking is where she experienced God's love and mercy and forgiveness and invitation. It wasn't loud arguments that convinced her. It wasn't some forced conversation with a hidden agenda like multi-level marketing for Jesus, right? which is how a lot of people feel about evangelism. Right? You get invited over to somebody's house and then five minutes in they're like, do you know where you're going to go if you die? Right? Whoa! Real, real weird bait and switch, right? It happened over tables, over meals. Welcoming and hospitable tables. That's where transformation began. And for those of us who are familiar with the story of Jesus, this should come as no surprise. The table was a major space in which Jesus embodied and proclaimed the kingdom all throughout his ministry. Think about it. What was one of the main repeated critiques that the... uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Hypocritical religious leaders had and and levied towards Jesus. One of the main critiques. He's a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, he wasn't actually getting plastered. He wasn't overeating. But he was spending time around tables with those people. He was eating, drinking, and befriending the outcasts, the ones who the religious folks had discarded. In fact, if all you had was the Gospel of Luke, you'd see story after story after story connecting Jesus with food. In chapter 2, where's Jesus born into and placed? In an animal feeding trough. The king of the universe come to be food for the world. Chapter 5 in Luke, dinner at Levi's house, a tax collector and an outsider. Chapter 9, he feeds 5,000 people. Jesus loves a good potluck. Chapter 10, he goes over to Mary and Martha's for a meal. Chapter 11, he eats with Pharisees. Chapter 14, he gives instructions on when you throw a party, here's the people you should invite, the poor, the lame, the blind. Chapter 15, he tells a story about the prodigal son, which culminates, it's the story of who God is and who we are, it culminates in a massive barbecue. Chapter 16, there's the rich man and Lazarus. He connects eating to your understanding of justice and love of your neighbor. Chapter 19, he eats dinner at Zacchaeus' house, another tax collector, another one. Chapter 22, the last supper with his disciples, he eats a meal with them. Chapter 24, after resurrection, he's not done. He walks a road with two disciples, eats a meal with them, then shows up with the rest of the disciples and says, guys, do you have some fish? I'm hungry. Resurrection works up an appetite. There's a scholar named Robert Karras who puts it this way. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. That's a Jesus I want to follow, amen? (laughs) Friends, the primary way Jesus ushered in the kingdom, especially for those who are on the margins, 
For those who have been hurt and burnt out by hypocritical religion, who had bad experiences in the past, the primary way he showed up to those people was through invitations to a table, inviting them to the kingdom by welcoming them in, eating and drinking with them. We're continuing in this teaching series here at Midtown entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, And so in the spirit of Fred Rogers, we've been talking a lot about neighboring, and really what we mean by that is in the spirit of Jesus. Fred Rogers did what he did in the spirit of Jesus. And we're looking at specific moments and stories from the life of Jesus that reveal to us what neighboring looks like, radical love of neighbor, and then looking at what that means for us in our own time and place. And today, uh, we're going to spend time at one of the primary locations of Jesus' work, the same location that Rosaria Butterfield experienced. We're going to spend time at a table. So if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen. You can follow along there. Also, let me know if you don't have a Bible. I'll get you one for free. Uh, any, if anyone knows me, they know I love free books. Uh, so I will give you a free book. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw it, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. And Jesus spoke up, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This story kicks off in Luke 7 with Jesus right in the thick of his early ministry. Miracle after teaching, after healing, come one after the other when suddenly everything stops because of a dinner invitation. Meals, people! He's always eating! A Pharisee asks him to come over for dinner. And that kind of invitation in Jesus' day was no small thing. In ancient Near Eastern culture, the table was a place of radical unity and shared blessing. Who you ate with indicated who you approved of or who you didn't approve of. Who you believed was welcomed into God's kingdom, who was pure or clean, who you respected or dignified. Scholars today have called this dynamic table fellowship. 
Now, there's one guy named Scott Barchi who talks about this. He says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin. That's where Israel was in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at the table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. To sit at a table was a radical act of affirmation, which is what makes this invitation so weird in the story. It's a Pharisee that invites him. That should be shocking to us as we read through the story. For the first few chapters of Luke, and really since the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the Pharisees haven't exactly been buddy-buddy with him. In fact, they've opposed him at every turn. They've critiqued the people he eats and drinks with. They've critiqued some of his teachings. They've largely emphasized condemning language, not dinner party invites. But this Pharisee extends an invite. And the text doesn't actually tell us why. It could be a variety of reasons. It could be that maybe like Rosaria, he had this morbid curiosity about this Jesus person. He wanted to check this thing out that everyone was talking about. Maybe he was a bit jealous. The Pharisees were respected teachers at the time, and Jesus might be stealing some of their thunder. Everyone's flocking to Jesus. Maybe he was doing this for his own social benefit. Jesus is the local celebrity. Hey, let's get a photo op. Hey, guess who I had dinner with? Jesus. Or maybe, just maybe, he had an inkling of belief that Jesus was the prophet and the Messiah that the scriptures were talking about. So whatever the reason, Jesus decides to go to his home for a meal. And in doing so, he sets the table for radical table interaction, one that changes the lives of the people who were there. He follows Simon back to his place. Now, in this time, the homes of well-off people like Simon would usually have some sort of courtyard or patio connected to the home with maybe a garden or a fountain in the middle. And when weather permitted, people would sit outside and eat in that courtyard. And that courtyard usually had access to the roadside, so passers-by could see into the courtyard, see who's eating there. And it was actually common for some people, especially if someone was really important in that day, to spill into a courtyard and hear their words. Someone like a rabbi would be someone that other people would want to come in and hear. And so Jesus, he arrives at Simon's courtyard, he takes off his sandals, and he reclines at the table with Simon. You didn't sit in chairs back then, you reclined. The table was low, you'd lean on one elbow with a pillow, and you'd eat with your other hand. He reclines at the table. And soon enough, a woman enters the scene. The text says that she learned Jesus was eating here with Simon, which is an important detail. It assumes that she was looking for Jesus. She was seeking him out. She learned about it because she wanted to know where Jesus was. The point of that detail is not to be overlooked. Friends, we should always assume, that regardless of where people have come from or who they are, they might be looking for Jesus. They're certainly looking for things like peace or wholeness or life or joy or freedom. We should be receptive to those folks. We should assume that people are looking for Jesus. And we should assume that Jesus is receptive to those who look for him. Now Luke is sure to tell us who this woman is. He says she was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Most scholars think this was a gracious way of describing a sex worker in that time. Her alabaster jar of ointment was likely an expensive type of perfume she would use for her work, and it indicated that she had been in the industry for a long time. Now, it's easy in our contemporary imagination to look down on a woman like that, to see her through a negative lens, as immoral or unclean or deviant in some way. But before we jump to that conclusion, we have to wrestle with the social realities of her time. 
Back then, very few women chose prostitution as a line of work. More often, it chose them. She was likely a slave or a former slave who was forced into this work because she didn't have attachment to a man or didn't have work skills. She may have been sold into it by her family. She may have been a victim of trafficking. Whatever her situation, she carries with her into this scene the weight of years of shame, condemnation. She inhabited the lowest rung on the moral and social hierarchy. Imagine her as she peers into this courtyard. She knows who she is. She's a sex worker approaching a highly patriarchal, male-dominated, conservative, fundamentalist world. She knows what the Pharisee and all the other people at this table will think of her. Imagine the weight on her. But she's also heard this Jesus before. Remember, she's seeking him out. She knows him. She's either had an interaction with him or heard his teaching. She knows he's a prophet from God who's come preaching a message of forgiveness and release from bondage and shame and a new identity of belovedness and hope and life for the weary. So damn what anyone else thinks. She crashes the dinner party. She may not be completely unstuck from her situation, but she believes the good news of forgiveness and homecoming and rest and peace. The bravery and the courage of this woman. Astounding. And before she can utter a word, the tears start to flow. She falls to the feet of Jesus at the table. Remember, he's climbing, so his feet are likely behind him. And then she unfolds her hair and wipes her tears from his toes. She starts kissing them and pouring ointment on them. Every one of those gestures in that time would have radically violated social expectations for women. Letting your hair down alone was an erotic gesture. Handling Jesus' feet would have conjured images of strictly intimate and romantic behavior. And the pouring of ointment was common practice in her profession. She's interacting with Jesus in the way her culture has taught her to interact with men. And so it's no wonder the Pharisee reacts the way he does here. He's appalled, as many of us likely would be. If this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is. He would know that this is inappropriate. And it's an understandable wrestle for him. Remember, what table fellowship meant in that context. To welcome someone to the table was to say, I approve of them. They are here and belong. Can Jesus really say that? Can he really be a holy man and welcome this sort of person in this sort of way? And it's easy for us to look down our nose at the Pharisees' lack of grace here, and that's largely because sex work has a different context in our culture. Oftentimes, it's celebrated in our time. It's not even the lowest rung of the social ladder. But transpose this woman to our time. Who are the people at the bottom of our social ladders today? Who would we be repulsed by if Jesus welcomed them to the table? Imagine if Jesus was having a meal with a pedophile. Imagine if he was eating lunch with a white nationalist. Who are the people that you can't even imagine Jesus eating with? What does that bring up in you? What are the feelings that that brings up in you? That's what the Pharisee's feeling here. And without pause, Jesus knows what the Pharisee's thoughts are. And he immediately responds, Simon. He says his name. This is the first time we've heard his name in the story. Jesus speaks him by name. And then he illustrates that he knows his thoughts. He's basically proving Simon's thoughts that Jesus wasn't a prophet. He's proving him wrong. He's like, no, actually, I know your thoughts. Simon, I know what you're thinking. I have a story to tell you. Well, he doesn't say that right away. He just says, I have something to say. 
And then Simon responds respectfully, Rabbi, tell me, teacher, speak. And then Jesus does the classic move of, I'm going to tell you a story. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarius in that day was one day's wages. So we're talking about two years' wages versus two months' wages. So think about your salaries. You can do the math. Those of you that have salaries, college kids, I know you're like, a couple bucks maybe? I don't know. Um, I get it. I get it. But if you have a salary, think about your salary. And neither of these people could pay the lender back. And the lender forgives both of them. And then Jesus asks Simon, which of them will love him more? And Simon replies, well, I mean, I guess the one who is forgiven more. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly, which is kind of like a sarcastic gold star to me, it feels like. Nice job, Einstein, you nailed it. The one who's forgiven more, right? Obviously. And then Jesus turns both of their attention to the woman. Do you see this woman? That's a great question we'll examine later. But first, look at all the shade that Jesus throws Simon's way. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. That was common practice in the day. It was like hospitality 101. Somebody comes over, they've been walking in dirt and dust in the ancient world with their sandals. You have to give them cool water to pour over their feet. It's basic, basic hospitality. You gave me no kiss. It's weird to us. Back then, you would kiss people on the cheek to welcome them. It was basic hospitality. You did not anoint my head with oil. It was a little bit more of an elevated sign of hospitality, but still common in the day, a sign of welcome. And meanwhile, this woman has bathed my feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, is kissing my feet, and anointing my feet with oil. This is brilliant irony in this story. This is the exact opposite of what anyone in that culture would have expected to happen. He's made Simon, the upstanding, righteous, religious leader, the enemy. And he's made the morally corrupt, unclean outsider, the hero. That's often how Jesus operates, friends. It's always the ones who know they're in need that understand and receive Jesus, never the ones that think they're put together. And then he closes with some reflections on forgiveness. He claims that it's precisely because this woman knows the glorious, expansive nature of what she has been forgiven that that, that's the reason she's able to extend love. According to Jesus, true hospitality and true welcome of neighbor comes through the table by people who know they've been forgiven. And so Jesus closes the interaction by speaking with a woman words as sweet as honey. You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That is, go in shalom. In a culture where her identity and her very personhood had been discarded, Jesus says, you are fully restored. You are a beloved daughter of God. This isn't just personal, individual forgiveness. It is that, but it's also expansive, social and spiritual restoration. There's a scholar named Joel Green who puts it beautifully in his commentary on this passage. He says, Jesus addresses her with words usually reserved for the conclusion of miracles of healing. Your faith has made you whole. And he sends her away in peace, shalom. Such language cannot be limited to spiritual well-being or even physical vitality, but speaks to a restoration to wholeness, including restoration to the full social intercourse with which, to this point, she had been excluded. She is named as a beloved daughter of God, welcomed to the table, and she goes away utterly transformed. Friends, Jesus uses the table to make an outcast a daughter. And he uses the table to challenge Simon, and ultimately you and I, religious people, showing up to a religious space. He forces 
all of us to ask three crucial questions of ourselves when we consider our own tables and how we neighbor in our lives. First question is, what are your invisible walls? What are your invisible walls? See, as often as tables can be bridges, they can also be walls. Back in the 1970s, there was an anthropologist named Mary Douglas who wrote a landmark research paper on that idea. She said, who we eat with and who we don't eat with are ultimately extensions of who we consider better or worse, good or evil, insider or outsider, friend or enemy. Our tables have invisible walls around them. And it's impossible not to look through our culture and see this obviously. I think about the way that restaurants were segregated before the civil rights movement. Walls. Or how, back in the mid-20th century, signs were posted in England outside of different restaurants and bed and breakfasts that simply stated, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Simon, in this story, has an invisible wall around his table. He's using his religion, his apparently superior morality, to build it brick by brick by brick to the point where he can justify his lack of love for this one who is truly in need. And if we're not careful, friends, we might do the same thing. Think about who you mostly eat with. Obviously, your immediate family, right? So the people who are very similar to you and close to you. But beyond that, who do you usually eat with? People who look, sound, and act like you. People who are in the same socioeconomic status as you. People whose personalities you prefer. When was the last time you welcomed someone who annoyed you to a meal? Or someone who you adamantly disagreed with? Or someone who had no ability to return the favor? who couldn't bring anything to the meal, or someone who your religious instincts have just, for whatever reason, called outside or unclean. Friends, one of the primary reasons Jesus was killed was because of the people he chose to eat with. He was constantly tearing down the invisible walls of his day. He saw the other and welcomed them. Because in the kingdom, tables are never invisible walls to keep people out invitations to bring people in. So what are your invisible walls? What are the traits or the actions or beliefs or behaviors that you want to use to justify keeping someone else out, pushing someone else away? And when those come up in your head, look at what happens when Jesus tears down those walls. Look at the freedom in life that comes for this woman. Sometimes all God needs for a breakthrough is a seat at the table. So that's the first question. What are your invisible walls? Second question. Do you see this woman? That's the exact question he asks Simon. That's what he asks you and I. Do you see the marginalized and the hurting as Daniel invited us to see in prayer? Do you make space in your life to welcome them to everything you have? Your tables are their tables. Your homes are their homes. Your life is their life. And the way we answer that question, friends, is always dependent on what we see when we look at others. When you see a neighbor experiencing homelessness, do you see them as a nuisance who needs to be moved on? Or do you see them as a beloved child of God? Do you see the angry coworker as someone to get back at or someone to be curious about? What do you see when you look at people? In this passage, Simon sees a corrupt woman full of sin, and that sight will never lead her to healing. It will only ever lead her into further and deeper acceptance of her broken identity her shame. A church is to be a vehicle of something radically different. The kingdom is radically different. As John Allen Turner put it, it's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them 
when a church they can see doesn't even seem to like them. Look at what Jesus sees. He sees a beloved woman who is looking, longing for love, for acceptance, for approval. And it's that sight that enables him to welcome her there. It's that sight that sends her away healed. See, when Jesus approaches a table, he's always looking for who might be excluded, who might be othered, who might be outside. It's never about his own social status or celebration or entertainment. And to be honest, that flies in the face of many of our American tables and homes, especially in our internet age. Much of the time, we use tables and homes as a way of showing off or as a way of entertaining or a way of impressing. It has a social status connected to it. And if you want to see this, just look at one famous couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines. You guys know. I heard the last. The Magnolia aesthetic, right? Flawless white cabinets surrounding a marble island with lighting that looks a little industrial, but is still nice and homey. And then you've got a backsplash that has a cool, tasteful color, maybe a sage or a turquoise. Then you have plates, obviously, that match the sage or the turquoise. And you invite people, and then you serve them something like sweet potato hash or avocado or chickpeas or whatever's popular right now. You want people to be impressed by your table. That's what we're sold. That's what we're sold. Ashley knows. I'm like, we're all in green. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing intrinsically wrong with the magnolia aesthetic. It's okay to have a great-looking kitchen. But if we're not careful, that carefully manicured image of the table can lead us to make our tables and homes about showing off or keeping up. That's not how the table works in the kingdom. Christian tables are never about the setup or the aesthetic themselves. They're always about the assumptions that we carry to the table and the, pe- the people we invite there. Which means Christian tables don't have to be impressive from a worldly perspective. College students re- uh, rejoice ramen is okay to serve at your Christian table. Amen. Yeah, amen. Jordan's not even a college student, but he liked that. Big ramen guy over there. It's not about the impressive product. It's about the welcoming posture we take towards our neighbors. Uh, To illustrate this and to help us navigate it, I think, in our own lives and how we approach our tables, I actually have a a graphic here I want to share with you that compares the American entertainment approach to table and home and the Christ-like neighboring approach. So in the American entertainment approach, it's about uh, exclusion. Invite who you really want to be there. Invite your friends. Invite the people you like. But in Christ-like neighboring, it's about inclusion. It's inviting the outsider, maybe the person you don't like, the person who's overlooked. In American entertainment, it's about performance. Your table's got to look good. Everything's got to taste amazing. In Christ-like neighboring, it's about service. The goal is actually to serve the person there, not necessarily to look good. In American entertainment, this sort of service is sporadic. It's when it's convenient for us, when it makes sense for us. Christ-like neighboring is a way of life. It's a regular rhythm. You're doing it all the time. In American entertainment, the table is about classification, defining who's who. You know who you are in a culture based on what parties you get invited to. But in Christ-like neighboring, it's about justice. It's about tearing down those walls of who's who and welcoming the least, the last, the lost. Friends, when we live in the kingdom, human beings are seen not as society or personality has constructed them, but as God has defined them, beloved. And the table is the primary way we express that identity, not just through some particular aesthetic, but through tangible welcome and care. And that leads us to our third question. What have you been forgiven? That's ultimately where Jesus lands in the story. He tells this parable, and the key point in the parable 
actually is not the amount of debt. You'll notice that. Both of these people, both of the debtors, have been lent everything they have, and both are unable to pay it back. They're both in the same situation. Independent of how much they owe, they can't pay it back. What Jesus is claiming here is a radically anti-religious view of humanity and God, religion as it's commonly constructed in our human systems. You see, in every other religious framework, there are hierarchies and boundaries and lines separating insider from outsider. There's always tables with invisible walls. And you become an insider if you do this or believe this or act this way, and you're an outsider if you don't. But Jesus is saying, no, those walls don't exist in me. He's saying instead that there is a one type of human, forgiven debtors who are beloved by their lender, forgiven sinners who are beloved by God. That is the one type of human. The difference between Simon and this woman has nothing to do with their morality or their social standing or their religious beliefs. Jesus has torn all those walls down. The only difference is that one recognizes their need for forgiveness and one doesn't. The woman shows Jesus great welcome and love because she knows that she has been forgiven. She understands the love she's received and she's extending it forward. But Simon, he fails to extend love to either Jesus or the woman because he's still got a heart of self-sufficiency. He senses no need in himself. He's a good person. I'm a good person. I'm justified by my beliefs and my actions and my status. The signs I put in my front yard, the bumper stickers I put on my car. And as a result, he's shut off from Jesus. And he's shut off from his neighbor in need. Friends, there is only one thing that can ever close us off from God and others. It's not morality. It's not religious status. It's not what we've done or left undone. It's self-sufficiency. That's what cuts us off from God and others. It's believing, as Simon does, that we on our own are not in need of God or forgiveness. And if we're being honest with ourselves, our thoughts and actions often look a lot more like Simon than they do like the woman's. We often stack ourselves up against someone else in our culture. We use our religion or our morality to define who's good and who's bad, who's worse than others, and we create hierarchies and categories. But according to Jesus, that misses the point. The reality is that all of us, in our own ways, have turned away from the source of life in God. It's not about who's better or who's worse. It's about saying we're all debtors and all in need of forgiveness. Eugene Peterson put it this way in his book, The Contemplative Pastor. He said, the word sinner is not a word that places humans somewhere on a continuum ranging from angel to ape, assessing them as relatively good or bad. It designates humans in relation to God and sees them separated from God. Sinner means something is awry between humans and God. But Jesus makes clear that the story doesn't end with debt. He gives Simon and us good news. Both debtors are forgiven without a second thought. It's already done. The lender has gone ahead and eaten that debt himself. It's costly and remarkably loving. That's the good news that Jesus came to proclaim, friends. There's no dividing wall between us or God or us or others. Jesus' entire life and death and resurrection points to a religion-shattering, hierarchy-destroying truth that you and I and every human we've ever interacted with are forgiven, beloved, and welcome to the table. And any social or religious or moral categories that we have used before, that we've leveled against other people, those disappear in the presence of this God. Which means when we look at our failures or our sin or our brokenness, we look at them differently. 
because those things are no longer separators for us. They're actually the places in which God moves and tears apart that separator so that we can come back. Failure and fall in the kingdom points us to abundant, laughable, joyous forgiveness. Felix Copa in Latin, as the Catholics have said it, fortunate fall. That our falls are the places where we experience the love of God. And when we become people who gaze upon that truth, who allow that kind of boundary-breaking love to just soak into our souls and our muscles and our bones, then it changes our tables. It transforms the way we see everyone else around us. Friends, being a good neighbor means returning to this truth of Christ's forgiveness day after day, allowing his love and peace to wash over us again and again. It's that truth and that reality that will make us far less like Simon, will make us far less judgmental, discontent, dismissive, and far more like this woman, joyful, grateful, loving, and gracious. It's Christ's forgiveness that makes us radical, table-opening neighbors. There's a great quote from an old monk who lived in the 16th century. His name's Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. He was a dishwasher for decades. And he writes about how he learned to return to God in forgiveness. He said this. Touched with a sensible regret. Notice he says sensible. Not morbid or shameful, but sensible, true, accurate. Accurate view of self. I confess to him and ask for his forgiveness. I abandon myself in his hands that he may do what he pleases with me. And the king, full of mercy and forgiveness, far from chastising me, embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the key of his treasures. He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand and a thousand ways and treats me in all respects as his favorite. That is the fuel for radical neighboring, for welcoming others to the table. The one who has forgiven much loves much. So to close our time, friends, let's turn our eyes to the Lord's table. This is the place where he welcomes each and every one of us, the place where we can approach him, the place where we are named, forgiven, received, and loved. And it's at this table that we learn what it means to be a good host. This table opens up all of our tables. Let's pray.